Hi, Steve and Nick. Welcome to Cloud Unplugged. It'll be great to obviously get a bit of an introduction from both of you. I don't know, Steve, if you want to give a bit of an intro to your background and what you've been up to and how you got into this domain. And then obviously I'll ask Nick too. Yes, sure, John. I think first, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Steve Nickel. I'm an Azure Solution Architect, essentially. Um, I'm still very much hands-on, but my role is as a Solution Architect. Um, I've been working with Azure for seven and a half years now. I guess just as a bit of a, an overview of the technology I've been working on, I, my very first Azure delivery was using virtual machine skill sets that were automating the delivery of IIS websites. Um, from there, I've kind of gone through the kind of the cloud native space, done a lot of work for a number of years um, with Kubernetes. I'm now kind of focused very much on the cloud adoption framework and enterprise scale landing zones. And that's the client that I'm currently working with. I've been with for over two years and that we're focused on the last six months has been about enterprise scale. That's kind of where I am now. Oh, cool. Interesting. And uh, yourself, Nick? Okay. So I'm currently a platform engineer for money for like a Microsoft partner called Kainos. It's based in Belfast and we work with Microsoft, AWS and Google. So I'm pr- some, I work with Azure on a daily basis. So my last Azure project was moving from AKS to app service migration. And this, my current one now is just migration from Jenkins to GitHub Actions. And then my next project will be able to go into native solution like AKS. Right. So you're both at Kainos. Yeah. So, but we're both, I'm ex-demon through Kainos. Oh, cool. And so you're working what in customers, different types of customers. Yeah. Different type of projects. And working on different types of projects. But you're both primarily in like the platform engineering space. You or like cloud space specifically. You're both platform engineers. You're more of a platform architect. I think Dave, you were kind of saying. I am these, John, but when I started, it was very much an engineer. And a couple of promotions later, now I'm kind of as a, kind of more of a solution architect than an engineer. Although on the current project, I am writing code on a daily basis because sometimes we need to. Um, it's one of the things that we're kind of we pride ourselves on in Kinos is that our attacks are still practitioners. So that's kind of why I I'm still hands on sometimes. And yourself, Nick, are you yours? Do you get into the solution architecture stuff? Are you like engineering? No, I'm just fully hands on. So yeah, how it works at Kinos is that he's platform engineer, senior platform engineer, and then there's a technical specialist and then there will be a solution architect which does the the high level design right and then we just do the hands-on and stuff so i wanted to stay more technical so uh, that's cool and then how have you both got into cloud because you mentioned steve you were is website hosting was that your entry into it all before it was my entry in the cloud yeah so that started that was almost the first thing i did when i joined kios but prior to joining kios i'd been a second line support team lead, very much a window system admin. You just, you know, administrating AAD, Citrix Solutions, um, the electronic document system. That was my kind of my team was responsible for that. My left joined Kinos as an engineer and got in the cloud from there. It's kind of out of necessity, I guess. It was what I needed to do at that point in time. So I kind of learned from the ground up, which was it's been a, an interesting journey. Yeah. And do you find then both of you I mean this is kind of to both of you, I guess from going from like IIS, which is like but especially seven and a half years ago, the services were quite diminished. So like seven and a half years later, I mean, even now going forward, like how do you both keep up with all of the cloud, especially if you're kind of multi-cloud as well as Kanos is, how are you finding that on like the rapid growth of cloud and how you're keeping up with cloud native space and then the cloud space and technologies and everything else? So I can answer that. So that's quite scary because so how I normally keep up with that is 
I use social network. So I use networking with other people, go to events, and then I kind of quite active within the outside club community. So I strongly speak up user group and things. So I try to see what's the latest tech or go on the roadmap, like what Steven said, whether it's a roadmap on landing zone. So have a look at the roadmap to what's the project for the next few years. So I guess I can, I just, on top of what kind of next to said or John, the, the other thing for us, I suppose, is that as a partner, a Microsoft partner, we get the opportunity to get involved in closed betas. And sometimes you get a lot from those. We can keep up to date with what's happening through that as well, because we know obviously before it's even become public that, that something's occurring. A really good example of that was the well-architected framework and the tooling that's available there now on the Microsoft website around well-architected. A colleague and I were involved in one of the groups that actually was helping Microsoft shape that product a few years back. Um, so you get an insight on where things are going um, when you get involved in those groups as a partner. And are you seeing, like, I guess, not just, I guess, if you're being more solution architectural, then you're a bit more business requirement driven, I guess, at the top, as in like what you're actually trying to do. Some of the well-architected framework, like the CAF stuff, et cetera, is quite, it tries to bridge like operating models into kind of like design of the cloud into kind of then the architectural element and then into then kind of implementation. I don't know how both of you from a doing execution on it all and then also from a, a customer even understanding CAF and like what it all means and how they're going to operate. Because I think what I've seen is even after you've read it all, it's kind of detailed, but also abstract and high level at the same time. So do, do you find it, just, do people even understand it properly? Are people kind of aware of like what it actually all means when you talk about the well-architected framework? I think when you give them a high level overview, yes, most people get it. I find the hardest part for me is when an organization is going down the cloud adoption framework route and they're trying to adopt the hardest thing for me is culture, because the culture within organizations can paralyze any attempt you know, to get into this DevOps space and this platform engineering space. And I think you need to be able to create a, a culture where people feel safe, that they can make mistakes. It's sometimes it's quite difficult in large organizations when you go in to help them with this, it, you know, with kind of traditional mindsets that everything is waterfall and has to be correct the first time. You need to let people learn and feel fast. And that's how you're really going to get on in the cloud space. That's the hardest part for me. A lot of the technical stuff around it now, Microsoft have done a lot of work to make it much easier. They have the CAF Enterprise Landing Scale, Enterprise Scale Landing Zone repository there, which does a lot of your landing zone foundational build out. You just need to learn how to consume it correctly. And from there, I guess it's an operating model where you need to just work with customers and try to encourage them, I guess, to embrace a culture of, you know, let's work fast here. But in the process of working fast, we know we're going to make mistakes but we'll fix it. People will learn. And then over time, you know, it's, a, it's kind of go slow to go fast, really. You know, if you don't give people that chance to go slow, then you're never going to get velocity out of what you're trying to achieve in the end. So I echo what Stephen said, but people can normally learn it from like whether we're having a set sandbox environment with multi-subscription for test subscription and then deploy like landing zone for Terraform and then just see how and how overview how it works. Yeah, do you think the detail of like, I mean, it's just my observation, but from the SDLC perspective, like software delivery lifecycle or development lifecycle, we you know, call it, there's so many aspects in relation to that, a little bit more tangible. The landing zone is way more operational, I would say, but it's still kind of technical. But the way that it's phrased and framed is much more, like you were saying, 
how do you reduce the risk of iteration but put guardrails over things and you kind of have like the tenants and the subscriptions and resource groups and all these other obviously nested elements that are surrounding it, which means the reason you're choosing those things is because of the design you're aiming for in your business, like, you know, why you're kind of isolating things is to kind of protect from change and things like that and obviously non-production production. But it's quite abstract because it isn't related to an app. It's related more to the business. So I don't know how you find it then. I guess maybe this is more for you, Nick. How have you found implementing it when it's got to the application and then the dev team kind of understanding and using it when you've kind of implemented, you know, when you've started to do the the changes? Well, I haven't implemented it yet. <laughs> so my best bet would be like looking at the high-level design first and then work out like whatever it linked to another like tenant where multi-tenant stuff and then so break it down as well and then test those breakdown whether it's linked currently so that's how i would link it yeah so i think i found it okay i don't think it causes any issues when done with a when done with an approach of trying to give autonomy to developers and the operational teams i think it's fine it works i think the important thing with the enterprise scale is that you don't put too many restrictions in place that are unnecessary i think that like you said john it's, it's important guardrails you know, like if you're in the online zone, you must have a WAF, your you know, traffic must traverse an IDPS device, it must have DDoS, some sort of DDoS protection in there. Those types of policies and things that stop people from doing things that could be damaging. You can't put a, an app service out there with a public IP address with no protection in front of it. You know, those kind of policy objects, you, you're putting them in place to help people not effectively damage what they're trying to do. But at the same time, you're then saying to them, these guardrails are in place and down in your subscription, You've got free reign to, to do whatever you need to do because we have the important guardrails, the things that are really going to cause us issues if you do it. We've got those guardrails in place to prevent you from doing it. I think it's a really good balance because it gives that governance, um, but it also enables people on the ground to be able to work because they don't have to come and ask centrally for everything they need. Um, you know, we're trying with that decentralized model of local autonomy. They can build what they want in their space provided it complies with sensible governance. And who do you see then putting those guardrails in place? I guess is that how do you collaborate on? Because there's obviously top level guardrails, like some of the things you mentioned could be organizational policies. Some could be kind of application centric policies. Like who do you see being the people that define them and then instantiate them? And then who's accountable for them? It's got to be a broad range of people. It can't just be the office of the CIO. The people that are going to consume this have to have a chance to put their opinion across. Um you need to understand what's going to happen on the ground and how, how people actually operate and what you're looking to implement. And yes, there are going to be guardrails that people maybe will not have the ability to change. You know, you might have something like your production network can never talk to your non-prod network. That could be a guardrail that's in place that's non-negotiable. And that's, there are certain things like that that might have to just be implemented from either the security teams or the office of CIO, whoever that may be. But for it to work, you really need to have the buy-in of the people who are going to be consuming it. And you have to make sure that you've given them the ability to do their jobs without being blocked. And do you see, think that, I guess this is maybe one for Nick as well, like as a platform engineer, like working on the T, like working on the implementation, this is just obviously a bit of a randomized question, but do you think platform engineers should be guardrailed or should they also have free reign to do things? Well, you should be able to like, Get, do what you're assigned to, like following the best practice. So like whatever you are assigned to only do specific jobs and you do that in other permission you need it, you get someone from like a senior engineer, platform engineer, do those additional permissions. So you think it's okay, it's, it's, it's fine then for the different levels of like, maybe you've got levels of platform engineering capability, 
some people may be more experienced than others, like guardrail. There's no like one project for landing zone. We work with different teams, like even say security and, and architect solutions stuff. There's no one project, so we calibrate with different teams. Yeah, because I guess the aim of the when you're working with customers, then even implementation perspective, are you inside the teams or are you like central in the business? I guess each business will differ for Kanos, isn't it? So whatever company you're working for, they might be designed differently. Do you have a preferred mode though where you say we provide central capability or do you not really care? No, we don't because they would be a separate person that relates with the clients and what, what they really need. And then that will relate with the solution architect that does the high level. And then we do technical architect that break it down and we just do this, like go to Scrum meeting and then how we can show, fix those things and we'll find those tickets and just do it. Yeah. So when you're then working with the customer then, Steve, do you prefer to do like, do you try and sell them on the benefits of platform engineering and centricity? I guess, how are you in terms of like the operating model and that you want them to adopt in relation to the landing zone around it? You always have different models and different ways of working and operating. Do you try and promote like a central engineering, solve the problems centrally for many teams embedded? Like, How do you design it? I think there's generally always going to be some form of central platform engineering and someone has to implement the guardrails and there has to be a process in place there that, that allows the kind of the autonomy. So for me, I like a bit of a hybrid. I like that platform engineering space in the middle, but in my opinion, it should be limited in its scope to what it does because ultimately the real benefit that comes from a business is what they deliver as a product and that happens down with the engineers so the central model sometimes especially when you're adopting cloud if you bring a centralized model in can become a bit of a blocker and when you're kind of just starting to build capabilities if you start to build a capability and that capability grows with a centralized model and the centralized model doesn't actually grow with that capability or with that with the capacity of the other teams then you find yourself in a position where you could have the central team being the team that's slowing everybody else down. And that's when the autonomy becomes really important. And when you've got that platform engineering team potentially in the center who are helping to advise on best practice, who are potentially maintaining the policies and the, the kind of some of the guardrails in the policy, maybe in an enterprise scenario, you still have to have some form of a DMZ that's cloud compatible, but you might have some form of a platform engineering capability who need to maintain that for the security of the business. Rather than letting the developers and the platform engineers down on the projects, change and do whatever they want. But I think it's really important to enable people to make changes to that infrastructure as well. So the likes of when we build our infrastructure as code and we build it as pipelines, we can delegate the ability to add a firewall rule, for example, down to NIP or whoever it might be in an actual team. And it might just be that the platform engineering team have a responsibility to ensure that that rule doesn't get through the PR process if it's doing something potentially damaging. That's kind of the role that, in my opinion, I kind of see platform engineering in that kind of federated autonomy space. They provide a level of kind of just assurance, not control, because sometimes when people think they're being controlled, they don't like it. It's just a level of assurance to say that you've got a group of people here who are going to make sure that you're changing the firewall, for example, you're not going to do anything that's going to break your team, John. Your neck doesn't make a change to the firewall that takes your app offline. You know, so that kind of piece is quite important. Yeah, so, I mean, there's been quite a lot of, I guess I've maybe jumped gone a bit with the platform because obviously one of the interesting things I think at the moment is because there was platforms historically years ago, then it was it kind of diminished a bit where, you know, because you had like the open shift and the large kind of platforms like Cloud Foundry, right? then there's kind of like Heroku Rise and all these other things. 
then it was kind of frowned upon because they were normally like giant, monolithic, very prescribed ways of working. And then it was more about tools and people felt like tools is better because more flexibility, you choose the tools. Then I think that's expanded to like, there's just so many tools. The CNCF landscape is obviously crazy, right? So there's like 8 million choices of 8 million different things. And the cloud vendors have got 8 million different choices, all kind of the same, but kind of slightly different. Then platforms come back again. So there's like, oh, actually, no, we do need platform engineering. So I'd be curious to see, like, what do you define as being platform? Like, what would you say a platform really is? And then what's your view on this? There's a, a rise called platform as product. I think that's kind of come out on like team topologies and people looking at the Dora metrics and actually treating what you do as like platform engineers as designing something for an end user, which might be the developer in relation to the business and treating it more like product ways of working and product methodologies. Don't know if you're, I guess, open to both of you to kind of answer what your opinions are on what is a platform and what do you think about platform as a product principles? I've heard about platform as a product, but I think most the cloud native will be leaning towards that, like pass service and stuff. It's like majority of AWS is pretty much like pass now. So unless you do some IAs and stuff, but then that's back in the days like the Steven. <laughs> so everything, I think it will be like platform as a product. So deliver one solution, make it scalable, like Azure Container Apps, that would be a platform as a product as well, I think. So you can scale, you can maintain it as well. Yeah, I think they're calling it, I guess, then the platform team when you're engineering stuff, because it's quite an overused term platform, because like some business app, kind of, I think I said this before in previous episodes, but some business apps see themselves as a platform because they're providing so like a banking platform. You might have a retail platform like Shopify, right? Or there's like, so the term platform's quite, it's kind of overused. So you might see platform engineers but they could actually technically be working on a platform that's different to what we perceive a platform is there is that kind of nuance on what actually is a platform is it the cloud you know is the cloud vendor the platform is there some other abstraction in front of the cloud and it's a different platform that people are building like what does it all mean in the industry when people talk about platform engineering i think it's probably just deliver solutions like whether we deliver like an app to a client like using Cloud Provider, like AWS and Microsoft. Yeah, so for me, platforms quite, it's a bit broader than just the infrastructure. I kind of look at a platform engineering in a sense that the platform engineer is there to enable the development of whatever product has to come to market. So it's not just the infrastructure, it's the CICD pipelines, it's support the SDLC. It's about making sure that you know, developers have a platform where they can get fast feedback, they can get accurate feedback. It's the whole kind of observability of platform as a whole, both across infrastructure and ultimately the, the software that runs on it. So I think for me, platform engineers have quite a large role to play across that, that breadth of technology. It's not just here, look, there's an AKS service or an Azure Kubernetes service spun out for you, go ahead and build your stuff. You know, the platform engineer might help with the, you know, with the Helm charge, the customized configurations, put, installing your GitOps agents, configuring all that. Do you want a service mesh? Well, the platform engineers are potentially going to help with that. So I think platform engineering is quite broad for me, and it doesn't just include spin out the underlying infrastructure. It's also all the supporting pieces around it and the automation of that. Who do you think like the end customer, the end consumer for a platform engineer kind of is? Because obviously from, you know, it's just kind of what Nick's mentioned around, even like some of the confusion, right? The cloud vendors have PaaS services, their platform service. You've now got platform engineering <laughs> as a term industry and then you've also got like devops embedded devops which is how can i actually help this team get into the cloud and i think what you're then talking about steve is like 
you really got customers and those customers are like you've got end users and you're trying to facilitate a bunch of end users in relation to the business goals and you're there to try and work out what part of the SSDLC and the decisions is the platform team making on behalf of them to help them move faster. It's also the kind of larger aspect of it is is making sure that everything's in place for people to deliver quickly. So that you know that might be uh, let's take I don't know let's take Templeifies or DevOps as a chosen CI/CD tooling. You know, making sure that that's properly configured, that you have good practice in place, so people can't push the main. You've got to go through pull request processes. You've got to have the correct provers in place, but also that you've got the fast feedback in feature branches that developers can they can find out really quickly what's breaking or what's wrong with the code. Because ultimately, from for especially in, in Kianos and, and some, because we do quite a lot um, in terms of you know consulting from just maybe two or three people helping with a little bit of platform engineering here or there, or we will, we can also. We're traditionally a software house, so we will also potentially put large teams into organizations and we'll do everything. We'll build their software, we'll build their platform. In that scenario, in for us, the platform engineer's job is to enable the developers. And that means doing everything for, to enable the developers so that they can hit the ground running and start building out the product quickly because ultimately that's what the customer wants. The customer doesn't want to have four weeks of four or five, six weeks of spending out an environment where the developers can be productive. They want to be productive from day one. And that's where the platform engineering piece comes into it for me. Yeah, because I normally work with developers anyway. So if developers want anything like secret change in Keyboard, I normally do it. So essentially, I'm part of developers as well. So they're part of us. They work as one team. Yeah, so you're focused more on the enablement side, I guess, on like finding out, like implementing what it is they need. Seeing if it's worked for them, I guess. Are you then assessing feedback for yourself in relation to those teams? Like, did what I do? Did is what I've just done actually helping, and is it working? And so, even with some of the services you mentioned, obviously you got you mentioned AKS there, like Kubernetes. You can't just be like, "Here's Kubernetes, go and knock yourselves out. Good luck. Just let me know when you have a problem." What do you see there then on businesses and yourselves? I guess from engineers. The amount of work ancillary to just AKS, is it high now? Do you think it's reduced? Do you still think there's a lot of like time-bound activities for platform engineers in that space? It's probably a lot easier today than it was five years ago to maintain a Kubernetes cluster in that kind of example that you used, John. Especially when we're looking at the platform services that are available in Azure and AWS with AKS and EKS, you know, it takes a lot of the hard heavy lifting away from actually spinning it out in the first place. But you, there's still a lot of maintaining to do in those, in those clusters. And I think the important thing is you've got to ask yourself the question is whether or not it's it's worth it. Um, because we went through a phase, a phase and somewhat are still where, you know, Kubernetes was flavor of the month and everybody wanted Kubernetes, but not everyone needs Kubernetes. You know, are you causing yourself an operational headache and putting a large noose around your neck just because you want, because someone has said you should use Kubernetes? You know, there are other services out there that will, that will do the same thing. And if you don't need the scale, that Kubernetes can scale to, then you know some of those other PaaS services are sometimes a better option. In next mentioned container apps, there's obviously you've got the Azure app service there as well, which can run containers. They can interact with each other in the, in the same way as services can if they were running in a Kubernetes cluster. You know, you've got the same protections from a, an inbound internet perspective. You're using different technology, so it's, I guess the question for platform engineers is: Kubernetes is always the right choice, and not isn't always necessarily the right choice. There's, there's a lot of use cases out there where, you, where now you could potentially get away without using it. You know, I know five years ago, Kubernetes was giving people a lot of benefits and flexibility that you wouldn't have got from other services, but the cloud vendors have caught up with their other private services and 
it's not necessarily always the correct choice now, in my opinion. Um, people might disagree with me with that, but there's a lot of work goes into maintaining a Kubernetes cluster. Um, it's not just easy. And I think sometimes people miss the operational overhead that comes with a Kubernetes cluster um, because they get lost in the, oh, look at all these cool features. Yeah, I think, I guess it's interesting to hear you both kind of say that because I think the bit that the platform engineers do is a bridging from a purist development perspective. I think there are lots of valuable services out there. Architecturally, I think there may be like event-driven architectures, right? There are like even maybe better architectural principles from a development perspective. I think the catch-22 sometimes is when you've got such a variety then to standardize on different ways of implementing in the cloud is the bit that's tricky because suddenly I've gone from having an agent that was like deployed via Helm that basically was a demon set that was collecting all the things that abstracted a load of stuff away. And now all of a sudden I don't have that because I've got native cloud service and it then pumps it to, you know, whether it's going to be Azure Monitor or wherever else it's going, right? So now you're like, okay, somehow I now, like now the way of working is different to the developer as it was maybe somewhere else. So how do I give a same experience to a different flavor of something? So I can kind of see why people, even though it might not be the right thing really, and it probably isn't, there are probably better application-centric stuff out there than just Kubernetes. I can kind of understand the stitching together of the experience for a developer being quite an attractive proposition to standardize on, even if it's conflicting potentially with like better outcomes that you could drive more simply elsewhere. So, yeah, I guess what do you do in the situation where you're diversifying, you know, because integration is really the, like, most of the platform engineer's job is like, it's the integration, isn't it? You're there to start to do the integration. And now the integration endpoints keep altering. You kind of caught between a rock and a hard place on doing the right thing, but having to work around now what it means. Yeah, and I think it's, it comes down to a bit of a tooling choice, I guess. In that example you've given there, particularly around observability. So if we take an example, we're containerizing app when you choose to use application insights, for example, as the primary kind of platform for observing what's happening in that application. It doesn't really matter if it's running in Kubernetes or it's running in an app, in an app service or it's running in a container instance or it's running in a container service. If application insights is your central point, then, then it, I guess you're enabling yourself to have that flexibility to, to choose which flavor of platform you want to run that particular container on, for example. And I think that's where the platform, sometimes I think people shoot themselves in the foot a little bit when they, they try to not embed themselves in the cloud platform that they've chosen. And they'll say, we'll use something else. You know, we'll use a, a different service for creating our observability of this application or these, these suite of applications because we don't want to be tied to this cloud platform. It's a personal opinion of mine. I might, might well be wrong, but I kind of am a believer in if you choose a platform and invest in the platform, why would you want to spin out some other form of service that you've got to manage and maintain if your cloud platform already gives you that functionality by just consuming another service? You're not going to move your service into a cloud platform and then move it again in six months' time, generally speaking. So the effort required to move it later is probably less than if you've run it there for five years and have had to maintain some other service, some other group of services to provide you with that observability framework. So I think that's quite important in platform engineering as well, is building in that flexibility in your decisions. Yeah, most of those are based on the client requirements, whether they want it to stay on Azure or using AWS or on-prem Azure in data center. So most of those are just requirements, whether they're how they choose to use contain like AKS instead of other container options as well. So. 
Yeah, so I guess then what you're saying is, you know, customers will be driving the requirements anyway. Then sometimes by trying to find solutions that the cloud order gives you, you kind of create more complexity for yourself. I do kind of agree with that. Just sometimes the cloud vendor's feature set can be slower because they've got like 8 million services rather than a vendor that's maybe just decided to just do one. So, I mean, so I can see sometimes it could be just history. They chose a thing before the cloud vendor had that solution or it was a little bit too early to go and go native, but then it does create complexity. But um, I think what you've said there is actually a really interesting point. And I think it's something that I always take, keep in mind when I'm working with customers and with people is that cloud platforms are evolving so quickly that, you know, what might have been the correct decision three months ago with the information that was available, make that decision now with the same information that's available. And actually there's a different service that might be a better answer for your problem you had three months ago. So it's quite important to keep an open mind when you're looking at solutions that have been built in the cloud, because as you said, John, they're evolving at such a rate. The feature set might not have been there whenever the person made the decision, but now it is. And it's quite, it can be challenging sometimes, especially when you're kind of working with a customer and you know that they would really benefit from a particular platform service, but it just doesn't do the one thing that they really, really need. But you know that the benefit of having that provided for you would be massive. And then three weeks later, somebody announces that there's, oh, here's a preview for this feature that you needed. And then you're in this position three months later that the feature that would have allowed you to choose that product is now available, but it's too late, potentially. So yeah, it's quite, it can be a very challenging environment to work in in that regard. Yeah, like you said, I don't think there's like, there's so many ways to skin the cows in there. There's like, you can solve the same problem using different technologies. You can reinvent the wheel. You can use cloud services. You can be agnostic to the cloud if you've got more than there's quite a lot of consideration. I guess that in, therein lays the essence, obviously, platform engineering is because there's so many considerations all the time that you've got to engineer something. It's just what you're kind of doing. I know we're kind of close on time now. I don't suppose it'd be good to probably, if you've got any advice for people, maybe yourself, Nick, from like people getting into platform engineering, where to start, where to begin, where to look, like how to kind of upskill if people are interested in it or wanting to kind of take a career in it. Okay, so I normally start by just pretty much hands-on, really, because I live by doing, because I was a self-learner. So I do like projects, like self-learning projects. And stuff. So I would advise people to, you know, get hands-on, like, like play with Azure, do a sandbox, and then neither can do the, some certification fundamental to get fun standard, but also learn some of the, the core fundamental, whether it's if you want to go into AKS, maybe learn Linux, or something like Linux computer A or stuff. So I recommend those as well. Did you do official courses or did you just do? Well, I was, how I get started that I kind of get started by self-learning, do certification, do online projects. And then I would, I met someone that's in the company, like someone called Thomas and then through networking as in on social media. And then that's how I get started. And then I get started in Canis by, they have a academy, a platform academy. And then that's where you want to learn some of the skills, like improve on Terraform, improve some AWS Azure, something about Gates and um, and AKS and things. You learn some of the fundamentals there, but then you still have to learn the fundamentals, but the fundamental you'd gain by doing certification, hands-on, your spare time. Yeah, that's very good advice. And then you, for, for, for both of you, how would they find each of you? Like, is there a place somebody listened and wanted to get in touch because they strongly disagreed with your opinion, Steve. I don't know. I'm joking. <laughs> Is there a way we can find you? 
So we're both on LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can find me on, I think you got a URL. So, so send to my Twitter. So I'm both. You can search my name on LinkedIn and you can see my picture there. And I'm also on Twitter, quite active on Twitter. So it's on a Nate Cloud Ops and stuff. And then. All right. We can all, can probably post them in the thing. And then I guess, Steve, you're on, are you on Twitter as well? And I am, John. Yeah. So I think my Twitter name is really original. It's underscore Steve Nickel. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, you find me on there too. All right. Well, it's been fantastic having you both on there. And then if anybody wants to kind of pick your brains on some of the things you said, they kind of know where to hit you up. But thanks for joining and talking about your experiences. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, John. Thank you.